Craft Beer Radio, episode 341, on July 11th, 2015. And welcome to Craft Beer Radio. Hello. Hello. And we are joined today, thankfully, wonderfully, by our great friend Julia from the Brewer Association, Julia Hertz. Welcome to the Hi. show, Julia. How this, are you? Great. This is the third time you've been joining us, but the last time was way back in 2008. And you're here for a teletasting, as well as to describe some really cool stuff. Uh, and we'll get into that right now. Yeah, so one of the things Julia suggested for the show is um, Julia works on the craftbeer.com website. It's a website that the Brewers Association puts together, which has a lot of beer education material on it. And they have a tasting sheet. And it, it's a guide. I think it, I'm looking at this guide, and it looks really good for someone who's developing a palate, might not have a bunch of vocabulary front of mind to pull from when they're trying to taste beers. It's kind of like a flavor wheel, but it's not just for flavors. It's for all the different aspects of tasting beer. Um, Julia, would you like to add a little bit about like where this sheet came from? Sure. And anyone that um, ends up listening and um, knows the beers, which you guys can reveal in a moment, if anyone wants to download the tasting sheet, it's on craftbeer.com under the beer styles section but you know the wine world has their deductive tasting method beer has kind of really yet to standardize things in any form like that but this is my little version of that world and working away working your way through beer so I, it's a list of my triggers through Cicerone study and working on behalf of the Brewers Association to try and educate myself and get all those triggers that I don't want to forget if I'm running, trying to really completely cover every nuance that a beer has Excellent, excellent. So yeah, we are doing four beers tonight. We might as well mention them up front. Yeah. People, people can, if they want to go do this, they can <laughs> go stop pause the recording and go get these beers. They're pretty widely available beers, uh, available throughout most of the country, I would think. We're going to start with the Sierra Nevada Killerweiss. Then we're going to go into two IPAs. We're going to do an English-style IPA, which is the 400-pound monkey from Left Hand Brewing Company. And they're going into a pretty new IPA from a pretty old brewery. Anchor Brewing just started making an IPA, so we're going to do that one. And then Boulder Shake, a, um, a brewery that is right down the street from where Julia lives. Well, I'm excited. So before we get into the beers, let's talk a little bit about the different parts of the tasting sheet. Because uh, there, there are a bunch of different... Uh, areas that you're looking at. I mean, and first, uh, first and foremost, we're just looking at color and appearance. Yeah, and you've also got an SRM chart. If you want to, this whole tasting sheet was designed to just circle. So it's got a hit list of what you might encounter, and the first section of it is color and appearance. So it's really helping you dial in to more common descriptors, at least at the Brewers Association style guidelines based on Say if you notice that your beer is um, the number six on this sheet, that's going to correlate to a golden color that usually is between five and six SRM. So you would just circle that. And that triggers the first part. And then also for appearance, definitely is clarity. And you just got a hit list to go off of to circle brilliant, clear, slightly hazy, or opaque. And um, we could probably, are we cracking a beer while we do this? Yeah, sure, so we uh, we opened the um, Keller Weiss from Sierra Nevada. Now, this is a uh, Hefeweizen, 
or Bavarian style wheat. There was a little bit, it's funny, there was a little bit of confusion when we were purchasing the beers. Um, Joy had one of her staff go out and buy the beers, and he was trying to find Keller Weiss. And he's like, which Keller Weiss? There's two of them side by side. There's the yellow label Hefeweizen, and there's the tan label that says Bavarian wheat. And it threw me for a loop at first, because I'm like, oh. Because I knew Sierra Nevada had a, um, they used Nooner for two different beers previously. Right. They retired their session IPA, and now Nooner's only a Pilsner. So I thought, hmm, maybe they're doing different kinds of wheat beers. But I'm pretty sure it's just a new label. I did some research. I couldn't find any mentions of a new label or a new formula. So I'm guessing it's just a new label. And yeah, when- I'm super psyched to try this because I'm actually headed to the new Sierra Nevada location in North Carolina next week for the Beer Bloggers Conference. Oh, very cool. Oh, awesome. And, and check it out. Um, but Sierra is now a two... I don't want to say coast, but East Coast, West Coast kind of location brewery, and it'll be amazing to watch them develop their East Coast um, presence with this new brewery. And it's also been fun to see them. At, this is Sierra's a hop-centric brewery, as most of you guys know, and, and listeners too. And they came out with Keller Weiss as one of their year-rounders recently. Um, but it's not a hop-centric beer. It's it's a very out there beer for somebody like Sierra, who's so known for their hop technique. So right. that's why. I'm and extra um, pleased to have this um, in the tasting and in their lineup. Yeah, so when we poured the beer, we made sure we wanted to rouse a bunch of yeast off the bottom of the glass. So Hefeweizen, almost always, I should say always, you want to get a yeah. bunch of the yeast into the They do the mention beer. that on the label, so they are uh, discussing that. It's 4.8% alcohol by volume. They don't have much information on their website about the beer, but I can tell you from looking at it from using this uh, SRM guide, it looks like it's between 6 and 9 on the SRM scale, which is between golden and amber. But it's really more of the gold area. Yeah, I would say it comes in around six. So, yeah, the top of the sheet says circle what is detected in each section below. And it says color and appearance. So it says very light one through one and a half, and then it goes up. So they call nice, five and six gold. Yeah, a nice uh, gradient mm-hmm. on there for you to uh, just compare. And it's just interesting that there are a bunch of small numbers, and then it jumps up significantly as it gets darker. Well, <laughs> I think yeah. it's a... Uh, it's, you know, it's um, well, it's shading. It's, it's 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 shading. It's it's almost logarithmic, right? The way that oh, I mean, it's not technically, but you know, where yeah. it's like there's bigger differences, even though it doesn't. Look we should as do different. more research before we say those kind of things. No, I, I actually I have actually looked into. I mean, not in a while, but I have yeah. looked into the SRM scale. So before. it's like decibel. It's it's dot logarithmic. I, 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 <laughs> the jumps and the more quicker progression as you get above, say. You know, nine to twelve to mm-hmm. fifteen, then you jump to twenty and thirty. Mm-hmm. The nuance to me between very light straw color, pale and gold, are so much more pronounced for my eye visually to understand and compute than the nuance between, say, brown, chestnut brown, reddish brown, and you know, dark brown. Yeah, like, I, I, sorry. To yeah, I totally agree with you. I, I think that we often we'll say it's a dark beer and then we just look at like highlights we describe if there's a tan or a ruby highlight or something coming off of it as opposed to getting into really okay this is very dark versus super dark yeah great answer tough visual visual recognition in beer i mean is key and we all know that you know dark beers or strong beers is a myth and all that but um I feel like that's the first place to start bj historic bjcp historically has us judging beers right out of the gates that way um, and we're looking at visual first to kind of prime the pipes and set the tone but color certainly is not 
a true indicator of what something will taste like, but the um, try and guess that color number and then memorize that scale is pretty dang fun. Julia, do you, um, you know, you guys probably taste a lot of beers at the Brewers Association, and you probably do a lot of this kind of analytical. Do you use those, um, I forget what they're called. It's almost like a test tube, though, but it's a very thin vial of beer, so you can compare it to the color scale without, like, the thickness of a very dark beer, um, you know, just turning black. Are you talking about a pipette? Or- very I mean, I've seen, it's not really a pipette, I don't think. It's, but it's it's kind of, it's a standard, um, it keeps the beer thin, right? So you can see through it even when it's dark. So, you know, stouts will turn to, you know, you can see different shades of red and things like that in some stouts and whatnot. We're not that scientific. Oh, okay. <laughs> all right. <laughs> We're, I'm all about the sensory side. The scientific side, I'm definitely journeying down and connected with some amazing scientists on the beer world, but um, I know the sensory side a lot better. Gotcha. Well, let's go through the sensory stuff on the color and appearance. So the, the clarity, especially after you rouse the yeast and put it in there, it's going to be hazy, and that's what it is. It's this hazy straw. I think that that pretty much covers it, but it's certainly not uh, opaque. <laughs> that would be weird. Mm-hmm. Um, a co- collar of foam and head retention texture. It's interesting because we don't really talk about that that much. One of the problems is that we don't use pine glasses when we're doing the show. And I think this, is this tasting sheet geared toward a certain glass or is it sort of glass agnostic? I think that's a great question. Um, It is glass agnostic, which I love that term. Um, But commonly, though, when I'm tasting, I try to have the glass not be the variable for the beer. So... I usually will put all glasses in the um, you know the same footing forward, so to speak, in a Belgian style tulip. Okay, yeah, I mean on our show the only glass that we've used for years and years is the Spiegel uh, beer tulip. So you know that's that's the, the official glass of craft beer radio yeah. tasting. And but the one thing we find with it is, and we also generally spit, split a bottle, so we're only doing six ounces samples on a twelve ounce beer, and six ounces of beer. In the Beeglow, the Spieglow beer tulip, it is not good for the head on the beer like you would see if you're pouring a whole 12 ounces or, you know, like, you know, the kind of things we're like looking at here about like, um, you know, collar of foam, head retention, you know, for us, it's almost always falls down right away and it's just a little collar around the outside. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I've sat through the demonstrations for um, those from Spieglow. Have you guys ever sat through one of those? For the glassware and their composition. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, one of the things with head retention that you bring up is it's a fascinating um, uh, composition of glass, but I can't chemically tell you what it's um, comprised of, but they'll show you um, molecular pictures and photographs, uh, you know, a thousand, fifteen hundred times in view magnified mm-hmm. uh, of what's happening in the glass. And the glass itself, they have gone after the um, lot. Uh, the lowest um, that they can get it to for porosity. So there's not a lot of nucleation sites. Okay. In other words, it's in, for the lay woman or man, it's a lot smoother sided glass mm-hmm. compared to your standard, just, you know, so to speak, mass produced type of glassware, maybe a pint glass. And so you're getting a lot less aggravation from the glass itself to encourage that carbonation to then give it a stronger head. And that is, you know, to me on the sensory side, you're ingesting more carbonation when you're drinking out of that style glass and you're seeing less head retention. And that's, you know, you can take it as, as positive if that's pleasing to you, but that's, it's a very um, different 
uh, approach than most glassware companies. Right, absolutely. I think that the six ounce sample also. Um, I mean, we're hearing a bunch of echo back through your speakers right now, Julia. Okay. I can hear you. Okay, that's better. I was hearing myself talk back, and everyone at home was hearing it as well. Um, it's better now. Um, I think the six ounce pore size in this Spiegelau beer tulip it also is not ideal, not what they intend, right? Yeah. Because it's the widest part of the glass. When you put a whole 12 ounces in there, it gets narrow again. It helps stand that head up. Like, a, you know, a Weizen glass or a Pilsner glass, you know, it has that narrow slope, you know, that narrow steep sides. It helps push the head up. I'm really interested, though. You mentioned that, you know, taking out the nucleation size means that you're going to have a more carbonated beer inside the glass because in nucleation makes the carbonation essentially come out easier. Uh, so... It's interesting that by using these tools, by using these Spielglau specifically, yeah, we're getting more carbonation. It's an interesting note. So I would say, so we can't really answer the color of foam quite as well, but I would say, you know, it, it's for us, it's about 15 seconds. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of texture and color, we were curious about some of these terms because we've, we've never seen interrupted as a texture. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I did uh, seek out into the wine world for some consultation hmm. and worked with one individual on the court of um, wine sommeliers, and that term um, was a suggestion from their side of things. Um, and what I like, uh, at least about the concept of thinking about the texture, is to, I mean, you might have a different interpretation because it's not as common in the beer world of interrupted. But if you put it in that flow of words, thin, interrupted, foamy, just in those three, my mind can take it to that middle level place. And, you know, eventually maybe we want pictures of what an mm. example, and that's a great need for the future. We could, um, you know, visually show what some of these words mean to help the taster. Uh, but, I mean, we've been talking for quite a while now. I'm kind of back to the beer because I'm mm-hmm. getting thirsty. Uh, <laughs> it, you know, my, my um, collar of foam has quickly collapsed. And that um, that collar of foam, where you know, poor poor retention up to 15 seconds, moderate 15 to 60, or good more than 60 seconds, to me, comes from some of BJCP philosophy, and then some of my spin mixed in there. But you know, most um, Hefeweizen styles, or we're in the Keller beer style of the Hefe, is um, going to be expected to have a large collar of foam. But it has definitely long since collapsed, and I wasn't paying attention. To <laughs> right? That. Yeah. All right, so uh, we can get on to the aroma part. Part, you know, we normally jump into the aroma in the first uh, twenty or thirty seconds of a beer tasting. So this is being much slower than normal, but let's go into the aroma. So the one thing I like to do to open up the aroma is I'm going to tilt the glass over till the beer is almost spilling out the top, and then kind of rotate it in my hand that coats the outside of the glass or the inside of the glass. The beer opens up the surface area and really opens up the aroma. And what I like about what we've outlined on the tasting sheet for aroma is reminding everybody that different ingredients bring to the table and lend different aromatics. We have a um, list of flavor profiles or aroma profiles, sorry, for hops that were certainly inspired by um, uh, Oregon State University's hop um, program and the way they categorize uh, with maybe one or two more thrown in. Um, we've got for aroma not just hops, but malt, esters, phenols, and then a line for others. So really, again, back to those triggers, this tasting sheet, if you're really trying to get intimate with your beer, and dial in and get a whole personality profile of what's going on, um, not just saying aroma is a mix of things, but really attributing what you might think led to that aroma, and that often can help you find descriptors um, in an easier way. 
All right. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. Um, so on this beer, you know, it's a varying half of a varying wheat. So you expect lots of esters. You don't expect much hops. You don't expect any hops hardly in the, in the aroma. And, uh, you know, it's a little bit of maltiness, but you expect the esters and the phenols to rule the show. I'm getting tons of banana. I'm getting a little bit of a peppery note to it. Our, yeah. our beer is also, uh, just a little bit light struck and I was worried about it. It was towards the front of the store. Oh, it was a new bottle shop that I went to to get these things. And it's a really fancy, like, bottle shop, you know, like, fancy displays, only a little bit of beer out, like, just kind of like six, like, in these little cubbies. But um, this one was towards the front windows. And I figured since it wasn't a hoppy beer, it was okay to still purchase. I grabbed from the back of the I stack. I don't smell really a, a light truck. Maybe, maybe it will trade a little bit. And, and I smelled it a lot when I cracked the bottle open. And I'm even getting something that we don't quite cover in our sheet um, that over time we could add, but, you know, that bready factor, that bread mm-hmm. essence from yeast. We don't quite have yeast as its own category. We got more specific than that, but mm-hmm. that would definitely fall on the un, under the other. I mean, traditionally, uh, Hefeweizens are um, at least 50% wheat and then a nice um, mix of Pilsen malt in there to make up the rest of the base. And so you're going towards those lighter um, bread notes that you're going to notice. And it, it's shining through pretty nicely, even though what's carrying the day to me is the phenols of you're getting the white pepper and the clove is there to me um, and some vanilla is even there and, and the, then the banana side of esters. But uh, I like how the yeast is also showcasing, um, uh, allowing to showcase some of the malt aspect as well. There's also a little uh, aroma to me of a slight kind of tang that you might associate with like lemongrass or something, a, a slight tanginess. That's a good one. Which I typ- we typically find in, in wheat beers. They have a, they may be slightly more acidic um, and just bring this a little bit of a tang. All right, so should we move on to flavor then? Yeah, let's finally drink it. <laughs> <laughs> We can move a little faster on the next couple mm-hmm. beers. So first for flavor and aftertaste, which is the third category, on the tasting sheet, we've got alcohol. I think it's always great to pay attention to what alcohol is in your beer in the first place. Um, and, uh, you know, it's usually um, also noticed or can be noticed in the aroma, so that would fall under the other. But in taste is definitely where you're usually perceiving it most. Absolutely. And I think not detectable, mild, noticeable, harsh, hot is um, a good mix. You could debate that harsh and hot could fall into the same type of category and maybe be perceived as the same thing. And I also think on the other end of the rainbow, the beginning side, not detectable, sometimes it's really hard in, in nicer session beers that we're getting and some of the um, you know more, uh, more uh, you know, gozes are out there now and, the, and some of the Berliner Vice on the market. I'm getting some beers that I'm tying that are not alcohol-centric, and it's very um, uh, appreciated and nice. So it's, you might not detect alcohol, or it might be hard to detect in the flavor. Yeah, I would say this one qualifies for if you're looking, if you're really looking for alcohol, you could find it. So there's probably a mild, but it's not. It, it's not really there unless you're looking for it. And in terms of flavor, I think some of the you know the, that wheat tang is coming through. A lot of that banana that we talked about and that clove is coming through. All those those esters that we smelled uh, and phenols that we smelled are, are coming through right in the in the taste as well. Yeah, it starts out the flavor uh, pretty sweet banana. You get into kind of a 
bread flour, um, bready type middle. Mm-hmm. I- I'm actually getting this weird thing. I'm not sure if it's me detecting more of that light struckness or not, but it's kind of like a stale bread. You getting anything that's reminiscent of like a stale bread? Hmm. No, I'm I'm getting something that may be reminiscent of of a buckwheat, almost okay. a little a little more mm. than just a regular wheat. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I could see a buckwheat type character where it's that like drying, yeah, type character on a wheat. It's somewhat similar to what rye can bring to to mm-hmm. a beer at some point. So I, I think I'm getting something. That I don't know if that's intended or not. Are you getting anything like that, Julia? Well, in the aftertaste, it definitely goes to dry to me, um, and that is part of the section that we're kind of in for um, trying to pay attention to almost, although if you move to the next category of palate, that might um, flavor-wise, debatable, uh, what you're describing is a prominent flavor or maybe a sensation, a tactile sensation, Mm. Um, but I would say that the, uh, you know, there's a low astringency. Mm-hmm. Very very low level, and that dry finish, kind of that um, that snappy finish to me, with the carbonation at, at the end and the finish is probably also what you're touching upon that I'm definitely getting. That's interesting. I never really, I guess I, I hadn't thought of it in that way in the in the sense that it's it's you know the flavor and the texture play very much a, a similar role. They're, they're kind of entangled with each other. Uh, these, the aspect of, of how it dries is, is playing on your tongue. And that, that is what your brain interprets it as flavor. Yeah. It's all a part of flavor. Have you ever seen the crafty.com flavor triangle? Yeah. I do remember looking at that. I'm trying yeah. to remember what that, where that was. That's one of my favorites, and I'll shoot it to you guys. You can share it with your um, listeners as well. But we had uh, Dr. Nicole Garneau from the Denver Museum of Nature and Science as a doctor of genetics. And I was like, Dr. Nicole, just help me understand this all. And I had kind of um, put what I thought comprised of flavor into a square. Um, Aroma, flavor, um, and then uh, sensations and intensity. And from there, she helped me kind of morph it into a triangle. And so we designed that graphically, and then we put the elements behind each thing of taste elements, aroma elements, and sensation. And then the intensity piece is really where I learned intensity isn't flavor-inducing, so to speak. So that's why it's a triangle, not a square. But intensity ties to how we perceive what we're getting from flavor. You know, it's it's fascinating stuff, and it was really good exercise, and I'm pleased that we finally kind of got it at least visually nailed where I can understand it. Um, and the sensations piece of flavor is huge, and, and Greg, you bring up the carbonation piece. I was talking about the astringency. Um, you know, something can be dry or cloying, uh, you know, flabby or puckering. Um, there can be cooling effect from, say, menthol or a burning mm-hmm. effect from capsation. Those can both be in beers. And all those sensations are, are flavor-based. So in the, in the sense, we're right in what we're noticing from this Keller Weiss and that dry kind of bitey finish, it is flavor, but it's flavor triggered from sensations instead of taste or aroma elements. 
One thing I really like on this, I'm looking at the uh, Flavor Triangle right now, and if you just uh, do a Google search, craftbeer.com, Flavor Triangle, you can pull it right up. There's a nine-point hedonic scale, which is how, how much you like something or not, because you can measure not only you know whether this flavor, this whatever it is, is intense or not, but also mm-hmm. do you like it or not. It, it's kind of I kind of appreciate the idea that you're you're not just ranking uh, what you like; you're ranking the stuff you like and the stuff you don't like, and the stuff that you're kind of indifferent to. Yep, and it all ties back to your overall impression and takeaway of what you're what you're perceiving and, and consuming, so to speak. So it's good; it is a good measure because when you put that in the mix, if you have a bias towards it, say, or you're getting it very intensely based on your palate and genetic makeup, you're going to perceive that differently and maybe have a different takeaway than the next person tasting it, who is, you know, a different individual. Just occurred to me, Joya, we might be drinking beers made in different places. Ours is probably made in Mills River. And yours is probably made in Chico. Let me look. I don't think the label says, you know, that they make beer in both places. It doesn't say. I'm trying to look at the production code to see if there's anything human readable about where it came from. But it's hard enough to read the production code, let alone decipher it. (laughs) Yeah, 4.8% alcohol, though, so I am seeing that. I cannot tell. Yeah. Yeah, they're not not willing to. Well, they do use open fermentation. So, I mean, there is a possibility that they haven't put in open fermenters in Mills River. I mean, they probably have, but, I mean, it's not like they're using their normal equipment. It's not the same stuff they're putting pale ale or torpedo on. Right. So, there is a possibility that all the Kellerweiss could come from Chico, but we don't know. So, okay, so let's, let's get down to brass tacks about this beer. Uh, final thoughts? From me? Uh, sure. Sure. No, you go, Jeff. I'll go second. Okay. Uh, so, like I said, I thought I, I noticed some light strikeness from this beer. Maybe I let that, you know, really get to me. I tried not to. It seemed like the beer didn't kind of have that creamy, velvety fullness that uh, I'm used to in a Hefeweizen that I look for in a Hefeweizen. It finished kind of dry. That, that buckwheat or stale bread type character mm-hmm. was kind of picking at me a little bit. It was definitely different for me. It was it was not um, a big you know banana or these ester forward hefas that I really do enjoy. But I did kind of I, I like the tangy wheat aspect and a slight I guess kind of um, limestone or granite kind of quality to to what I was tasting. I thought it was a little bit you know, it almost tastes a little rustic, and I sort of appreciated that. I like that um, descriptor, rustic. And I mean, mine is a little different, and that's the fun of this, is I feel like I've got killer yeast characteristics that are carrying the day in this beer, so maybe just mine's a little fresher. And that snappy carbonation is glorious. I want this beer served colder. Um, It's warmed up while we're talking, so that's my advice, at least in this style, a note to myself. Like, you know, I want to drink it cold, not too warm, just based on that um, extremer carbonation and that drier finish. Colder is even more helping continue to enhance the refreshment factor and then I like the wheat malt I mean it is a little sweet mid-sweet or in the mid taste is, is a little bit sweet and then it goes to dry like we talked about so I think it's showing very well at least in my glass just a little bit too warm interesting okay. we actually we try to um, we've talked about this a couple times about about the beers in general we find that we like to have the beers warmer when we're doing strict analysis uh, we find around 55 degrees or so is actually prime for when we get 
the best kind of being able to to dive in and get the best analysis out of. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it, that the beer is going to be the best, the most drinkable at that temperature. Yeah, I, I get that. And so I would do that, too, if I was um, judging it per se. But I want to drink a whole glass of this. It's Saturday night. Who cares? So, you know, I'm, I'm interested in um, that refreshment factor because that's mm-hmm. what this brings to the table for me. So it's good to – it is interesting to note your guys' tech, technique over 300-some-plus shows. You've landed on 55 degrees. That's a little tidbit. Yeah, the other the other tidbit that we found just recently is we have this infrared thermometer that we've been using, but we learned that it only judges the interface um, between the beer and the air, and it's about three to five degrees warmer than if you use a probe thermometer and measure the beer. So we've been giving people bad information for much of that 300 shows because we didn't realize the infrared thermometer wasn't giving us the right number. Well, we were always telling you it was from an infrared thermometer, so right. as long as it matched up, it would have been about the same. Hey, what did, what beer did you just serve next? Uh, the 400-pound monkey from Left Hand. It's an English-style pale ale, and I don't know a ton about this beer. I've Actually, this will be the first time I've ever had it. Okay, so 6.8%. Okay, they're from right down the street. I'm in Lyons, Colorado, and Left Hand is 20 minutes away, you know, in the car to get to their tasting room. Amazing brewery. I think that um, they're, think about characteristic, I was talking about Sierra, how they're not a hop-centric brewery, or that, sorry, how they are a hop-centric brewery. Now we're at the other side of the rainbow. Left hands never hung their hat on too many hops. They've hung their hat on nuanced beers. Mm. So this isn't even what they're most talked about for these days with their nitrogenated technology um, in their milk stout, and their sawtooth on nitro is glorious, too. Uh, but this is their ode to, okay, if we're going to make something hoppy, let's do it. And I literally remember touring Left Hand with um, Eric Wallace telling us this story where the joke is the 400-pound monkey really isn't in this beer. The point is is that they did what they did to make this beer um, an English-style IPA um, uh, with, uh, you know, um, the, the hops are Magnum, um, Bodacia, if I'm saying that right, and I, I don't know much about that hop in Sovereign. Um, but it's a it's a nuanced beer is what it, what they were setting out to do. Interesting. And yeah, so it's over malts, pale to real, crystal, Munich, and malted wheat. So there's a interesting there's a bunch of different malts in here too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then six point eight percent alcohol by volume. And for IBUs, they say a polite monkey never tells. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of the color of this beer, it's let's see. I, I would say it's. You know, without looking at the sheet, I would have called this a copper. If I'm looking at it now, it's kind of in the comparing to the sheet. It's uh, between nine and twelve, yeah. which are the things that are on the sheet. So we'll just call it a uh, let's call it a eleven. Yeah, I'm amber to just bordering on copper. I'm with you. It's left hand is brewery that's just um, been making such amazing moves in the craft brewing world. Uh, Eric is on our board of directors at the Brewers Association, very involved beer community individual, very outspoken voice for the Colorado Brewers Guild um, and what's been going on with grocery stores um, and licensing for them to be able to uh, sell full-strength beer, um, which Colorado doesn't have that except for each grocery store can have one location that does that. Um, so it's remained restricted thus far, and there's a culture here in Colorado 
that has developed and um, been focused on education where you go into the grocery store and yeah it's all about convenience because it's a weeknight and I'm busy and want to get back in the car and go home and then yeah I gotta still go next door to get my beverages, my fermented beverages, but when you walk in next door the people know what they're talking about mm -hmm. instead of just grabbing it off a supermarket um, shelf. So that's at least some of the argument um, over time that has been presented of uh, that culture would be very interrupted if you remove that and allow the licensing. Um, and so he's been a very vocal component uh, or a proponent of saying, please keep it the way it is. It's and then they just went ESOP is more news for left hand, meaning employee ownership. Oh, and you're wow. seeing breweries do this. I mean, uh, regional craft brewers like Deschutes, New Belgium, um, and uh, left hand are good examples. And that long-term kind of succession plan is going on because a lot of the heritage craft brewers are now more than 20 years old. So left hand's a, a player in kind of the stories of what's gone on and, and the moves that they're making are indicative to who left hand is, but also uh, much of what's going on in some of the more um, advanced craft breweries' minds. That's a, That's a term I haven't heard yet. Is now we're getting the echo again. I can hear you. It's weird for some reason. Uh... Okay, I think it just cut out. Yeah, it's not that bad now. Uh, I never heard the term heritage craft brewer before, but it's a. Uh, uh, more what they are, right? You have a lot of brewers that are getting up to retirement age. They've been making beer for 20, 25 years. And they need, like Joey said, succession plan. I've never heard the term heritage craft brewer. How long have you guys been using that term? I mean, I remember saying to Ray Daniels, um, who I took his position over at the Brewers Association, when he left to start the Cicerone program, Ray, before that, was at the Brewers Association running the craft beer program that I now run, and also Brewers Publications that Christy Switzer now runs, um, and when he was training me, Ray, you know, uh, Ray was literally kind of almost on retainer to be my mentor to help me segue into my crazy, amazing role. And I remember saying to Ray on the phone when he had already exited and he was back in Chicago, um, just you know, talking a few hours a week. I'm like, so what's a heritage brewer? <laughs> and then he explained some of you know the more uh, mainstay brewers in the U.S. And you know, you could put uh, Saradac FX Matt on that list. Um, you have many brewers that would argue they should be on the list for sure, um, Spetzel for sure, um, and the like. And then now I apply that same concept um, to breweries that have been around more than 20 years in the craft scene that have really been um, influencers and mentors to other breweries like Sierra Nevada and Ken Grossman. Um, and I, I do think that uh, what Eric Wallace has done and, and his partner Dick Dorr and others involved, Jeff Mandel, they they fall in that mix. Okay, it is interesting that we're getting kind of into the second generation of craft beer. Uh, you know, in terms of people coming up, there are a lot younger people who are coming up now and starting up breweries as opposed to. So there's a whole generational. I guess it's not really a divide, but it's definitely like you say. It's you know, there's training between. There's, it, it is this heritage concept. Yeah, and so guys, just so I don't. Have you upset at me? I jumped to tasting it. Okay. okay. All right. All right. Um, one thing I wanted to mention, we're, you know, back towards the visual part of this, the clarity. Greg mentioned that they added wheat to this beer, but it is Very a brilliant good. clarity. So it may be filtered or something to get the wheat back out. There's no sediment in the bottle. So um, just for aroma, I'm getting a lot of toasty uh, caramel notes, a little bit of toffee, too. 
Yeah, that's, you know, good English-style yeah. IPA gives you a lot of that toffee and caramel along with the hops. And the hops are in there, too. They kind of are coming across as a little more um, earthy, a little bit grassy, you know, nothing that's too citrusy or piney or anything like that. Or in, we, have a, we have a word... Um... Uh, we made we made up a word for <laughs> for it. a for a descriptive term because we didn't like the one we were using. Uh, when there are very there are some very powerful uh, hops that have a lot of these sulfury compounds that tend to be kind of um, we used to say biological. Uh, a lot of people call it cabby. Yeah, and and we call it doored. <laughs> so, D O R D. And that's so really. Where did yeah. that come from? It just replaces caddy. Yeah, it replaces caddy essentially. It's, it's, it's our own term for um, for what we've described as uh, you know sometimes it can be described as as a drain or a biological or even like urinal it can sometimes be, be pulled <laughs> into that at points. We we think Dord's a better word, especially the urinal one. Yeah, yeah, much more polite. <laughs> So, um, I love the combination of crystalline Munich in this, um, and then the malted wheat that you mentioned um, gives it a little bit of a body, maybe contributing to that head retention. But what a nice combination of malts! Yeah, the um, there's a weird, uh, interesting interplay between the malts and the hops. It's like take the sip; it seems like it's going to be malt forward. Then the hops kind of came up for me. And I was getting these things that were kind of. Uh, it's more citrusy in the flavor than I was getting in the aroma. So I was getting something that was a little bit like orange peel. But then the malts came back and said, no, you're not taking the show over quite yet. And then it took a, for a moment. And then the hops came back. So it was this like back and forth that I got through the first taste. This isn't one of those big um, Doherty hops like um, Amarillo. This is more, it's getting in the tropical area. Because I'm tasting something that kind of is uh, reminds me of papaya. So I'm getting a little bit of grapefruit and papaya notes with uh, these hops. And then, like you said, the... That um, wonderful crystal. I love you know pale ales with crystal malt. I love what it brings to the table when you get that combination of sweet and hoppy. Papaya is a really good call. I'm, I'm definitely picking that up. It's not too aggressive on the bitterness. I mean, it's there. I think it. It's not like a arrogant bastard's language. That would be one where I'd say that is super aggressive. Right, and on the tasting sheet, we account for both hot flavor and hot bitterness. Mm -hmm. And I like taking that into account mentally if I'm really trying to dial in. Mm -hmm. And I do get, you know, I don't get an aggressive bitterness, but it's it's not quite moderate either. Um, it's there, and especially in the aftertaste, that bitterness, that clean, sharp bitterness is lingering. And my palate's pretty fresh. I mean, we really only have just barely tried one beer. Um, but it that it's showcasing a nice clean between moderate and aggressive, whatever that magic word is, bitterness to me. And then I, I do love the the hop notes that you're bringing up, and that is a nice that is a nice descriptor, Greg. <laughs> Along with the papaya, there's also this um, herbal thing. It's almost minty, maybe a little bit. You know what? It was it was funny because I was thinking, is there a bit of like rhubarb or something okay rhubarb may be a little bit too sweet but i was thinking more along the actually i was probably thinking somewhat green somewhat sort of a celery leaf 
type. Okay. Just a bit. Just something to give it a little bit of, I don't know, a little, a little kind of sulfury bite. I was going more towards Captain Crunch Berries, or whatever those red berries are. Crunch Berries, huh? It's been so long since I've had Crunch Berries. Yeah, I haven't had those in a long time. All I remember tasting from that is really sugar. Yeah. Finishes uh, really nice. Mmm. There's a nice kind of smoothness to it. Do you know if they ever serve this on Nitro, Julia? I have not... Um, had it, but I'm not in there enough. Right. Because I think that would be a pretty neat, uh, you know, they love their nitro. They like putting things on nitro. And, you know, what I'm thinking, I'm like, I'm drinking this English style IPA. I'm like, if this was just cast conditioned, that would be pretty good. Yeah, that's true. This, this would be really nice on cask. I totally agree. And the, the warmer temperature is favoring it so much, um, uh, better even than the Keller Weiss, Mm -hmm. I think, dealing with the flavor. And I could drink, you know, a lovely amount of this at this flavor, and I, I like it sitting out. It's even getting less mm-hmm. carbonated and going more towards that cask essence of, you know, 1.5 volumes of CO2 eventually, and just really being sippable and, and sessionable, but with a, a bit of a healthy girth of, uh, you know, alcohol at almost 7%, 6.8. Well, not, I'm sorry. Right. I'm sorry for interrupting you. That's okay. Not a sessionable beer. <laughs> but yet it's easy to drink. Yeah. It's easy to drink. Uh, while the bitterness, the hot bitterness wasn't aggressive, it does build. You know, after our six ounces here, you mm-hmm. know, I finished mine, sample. I have a lingering bitterness in my tongue that's hanging around. It's not going to be going away that's anytime true. soon. That's true. So it's definitely a building bitterness on this one. I love that. And Randy Mosier talks a lot. He's been writing for All About Beer now for a, a little bit again about how tasting is uh, as a movie. It's not just a snapshot or a photo. Mm. And that analogy of bitterness building, your brain kind of linking into that growing bitterness, and I don't chemically know what's happening there, I think is very appropriate and true because every time I take a new sip, that sharp bitterness that was continuing to build and still is as I'm talking because I, I finished my sip goes right away. My brain short circuits. Then I get back to some of the um, the flavors and the uh, actual aromatics that my my mind is perceiving and then it all starts to build again and builds mm. that bitterness story. But it's very clean, pleasing bitterness. I, I really like it. This is a very drinkable beer. This is a beer I could easily down a couple of and and, and be in trouble. <laughs> I, I think sometimes you, you get those beers that are, um, even though your sobriety is going to be hurt by them, you still feel like, man, I just want to have another one of these. Yep. I put it on that list. Julia, are you ready to move on to the next beer? Let's go. All right. Are you drinking all 12 ounces or are you saving them for afterwards? Me? No, I've had like two or three sips of oh, Okay. Meat. All right. All right. Because <laughs> if you were downing each bottle, that'd be impressive. <laughs> we'll yeah. have you on for the post show if that was the case. I'm not that badass. <laughs> what are we going to next? Oh, yeah. The Anchor. Yeah, we're going to do the Anchor IPA now. So I'm. Re- I'm- excited to have this when I saw it on the list because my very first brewery tour was at Anchor Brewing Company and I remember I was on a cross-country trip and I had uh, I was broadcast journalism major out of college and my parents were freaking out because I quit my job at CNN Washington DC and I was lower level you know intern and then to a paid desk job and then um, 
work my way up um, to production coordinator, but I quit and hated it and went cross-country. And on that cross-country trip, two big things happened for beer to me. Besides volunteering at the Great American Beer Festival, which is how I got introduced to the Brewers Association, when we were in San Francisco, we talked our way into a tour, and normally you needed like weeks in advance to book it. And I was just so enamored with their marble bar and how the brewery felt like you were inside of a ship, and the employees were super fun. And it was that that tour. I remember leaving that night, and the employees um, sent us to Chinatown for the best dinner ever. And I was like, I want to work in the brewing industry. And so I was very pleased to see this on the list because Anchor has been there from the start, and yet again another heritage craft brewer. I'd love to go on that tour. That sounds awesome. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've been to San Francisco a few times, but I never had the opportunity to uh, check out Anchor. Oh. Well, and- First American IPA, at least they claim, and I, I haven't heard claim discounting that, you know, with Liberty, um, mm-hmm. Anchor really made, in 1975 it came out, and made the first American IPA in theory, um, you know, it's interesting they're using Cascade Hops, just like Sierra Nevada at the time, um, but now they, that they, this move for them to come out with a different, um, more complex-centric um, uh, IPA, is is a fun move, and I haven't tasted it yet, so I was very excited to get the chance to. Yeah, I saw it on the list, and uh, I was happy that we were able to line this up on the show. Because I saw it on the shelf, I should say, and I was happy to line it up because, yeah, I mean, everyone's had beers from Anchor. The IPA, I, if I remember, it's probably only about six months old. So here's the requisite uh, information on the 6.5% alcohol volume. The malts are user a blend of uh, two-row pale Munich and caramel uh, barley malt. Hops, there are two, there's... Regular hops uh, that are used in in the boil and dry hops. So, for in the boil, they're using Cascade, Bravo, and Apollo. But then dry hopping with Cascade, Apollo, Citra, Nelson, Sauvin. Those are those New Zealand ones that have sort of um, grape qualities to them. Um, and Haas Experimental Number Four Thirty One, which I don't have any idea which that one is. Well, Haas is a hop farm, right? But I'm just right. don't know what four thirty. Which one four thirty one is? That's one that difference between four thirty and four thirty one might be huge. <laughs> Could be. No, so I'm getting huge head retention on this one, and a yeah. fun little when that happens to me is if you taste the foam of your beer. The foam is twenty five percent beer, but you truly get a sense of the the bitterness um, because the uh, the the hop oils and um, some of that bitterness will carry through to the foam and be more concentrated and frankly less distracted by what else is going on in flavor. So it's a fun one to always dip my finger into the foam if I've got this much foam going on and, and just get a taste. Yeah, the, I was going to mention that the head retention, even with the half pours in the beer glass, it doesn't hold the yeah. foam very well. It was a big head. It stuck around for a long time. In terms of color, we're getting into what I would almost call like a cherry wood or something. It, it's it's around 15 or so. It's starting to get reddish. I'm going to incorporate one of these uh, descriptors into my vocabulary. I'm going to call this chestnut. Okay. So, thanks, Joey. I'm going to start using chestnut now. Cool. Uh, Very clear in terms of clarity, but uh, let's get on to the aroma. Yeah, the aroma is all kinds of hops. Yes. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, it's... it's, um, I give it fruit and forest in the aroma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's this blend. It's not straight up tropical like some of these... A lot, of, a lot of new IPAs are, but I uh, like how you mentioned it's fruit and forest. It does have some kind of more um, sappy notes or something, or uh, 
you know, something just a little more earthy, pulling it back from, you know, tropical. One thing I noticed on, on the sheet in terms of hops is you separate it out. Uh, we, we would all, we sometimes say uh, resinous and we'd say piney. You put spruce on there, too. And I think that's, you know, we I hadn't considered that, that, you know, spruce and pine are different. And they have different sort of qualities. And I hadn't really pulled that apart. So I like having that option. Yeah, and if you think about spruce tips or you're ever going for a hike, that's the best way to get that essence is when you're seeing those light green tips just starting to form. And usually if brewers ever brew with spruce, those are the fresh um, ends that they will harvest. They won't use uh, the more mature sections. And that's a great thing to taste. And as soon as you taste that on a hike, you, you know exactly what it tastes like for spruce. makes me wonder if brewers ever used hop shoots in the brew. As a, not just for hop, you know, like well, hop shoots, a, like you yeah. would use spruce tips. Uh, I know people use it for food cooking. Yeah. I have, don't know what, what they would be like to try to brew with. Interesting idea, though. There's something a little more dank coming. If you really do the whole tilt and twist thing to open up the aroma, you get, it turns more dank. You lose a little bit of that fruitiness. Um, so it depends on like how much surface area and how dank it is on the aroma. Yeah, so the so the what you're saying, I think, by dank is like the resiny components mm-hmm. are a more forward. Yeah, as as this builds, than the fruity components. And the fruity components are a little bit more. Um, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Delicate, I guess. They are delicate, and it, it's really fruity. I'm like trying to figure out like what it is, and I'm kind of like it's a touch pear, it's a touch grape, it's a touch dried cherries or something it's hard to say and all of those things typically aren't i'm like hesitating here because they're typically things i'm talking about when i'm talking about malts and esters yeah and i'm talking about them in hops this time and it but you know it's it's probably some of that nelson Mm -hmm. and the and maybe some of these other things playing around giving me those fruity flavors i would sorry The, the, I love the aromatics enough to turn into a, a perfume. <laughs> yeah, we often uh, we, we used to say sometimes that there were um, air freshener uh, beers that we like. We just we want to have this smell. Or we want to like put it in our cars or something. Yeah, there's almost almost a little stone fruit coming from. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's this weird fruitiness yeah. that seems like it's coming from the hops, not from esters or malts. Take on. I took my first sip, and it really kind of leads with this um, biscuity maltiness. But then that biscuitiness really gets washed away pretty quickly by the hops, and the hops are coming across kind of orange pith and getting something, uh, I guess, green grape skins. I also think there's a fairly steady uh, pineapple thing going on through okay. that. I like the pineapple descriptor, and it does. It goes straight from malt to hop flavor to um, hop bitterness, and this is definitely more of, it's not a bracing bitterness, but it is compared to the 400-pound monkey. Mm-hmm. You're getting the big difference between that English and American IPA approach because it's, it's got a, um, a strong bitterness coming up the backside and, and not letting go. There's a, there's a lot going on here. I'm, I'm feeling like this is... Uh, this is kind of what they kind of describe it accurately. It, it it's kind of a mix between this sort of tropical stuff that we're seeing and some of the more foresty stuff. The the older like 
uh, the, her- the heritage IPAs. Yeah, the, the the big Chinook, you know, the big resiny, um, piney ones that um, that are still being made, but are, are not the newer ones that are right. coming out. Yeah, this one, the bitterness is definitely laying heavy on the palate, and that's kind of something that was stereotypical in the IBU wars yeah. of you know seven eight years ago. <laughs> and did you uh, survive the IBU wars? Did I survive? Yeah, I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things we've been talking about on the show, Julia, late, a lot lately, and I'm not sure if you've picked it up or not, but, you know, I'm, like, refreshed with the, the the new genre of IPA, where it's all these new hops that are giving you tropical flavors and not as apparently bitter. You know, the IBUs are still up there, but, you know, I've been telling people, you know, if someone says they don't like oh, it's an IPA, I'm not going to like it because I don't like bitter things. You know, try um, Alpine's um, uh, Duet or something like that, you know, where it's really hoppy, lots of tropical flavors, and that there's not that lingering bitterness. Mm-hmm. It does. It's not as apparently bitter. The alpha acids, the beta acids that are in the beer are different than what everyone was doing during the IPA wars. Yeah. And uh, so it, it's, it's a really... Uh, Exciting time, refreshing time for me because there was a time where I was like, oh, I'm so over IPA. Give me a Dortmunder. <laughs> but over the last three years or so, I've been back on an IPA kick pretty hardcore. It's great. I think IPA is my kind of home-based style. You know, when you're, you've been at a festival and you finally maybe get home from the trip or, or whatever and you really want to sit down and have a full beer, not just two ounces of something. Mm-hmm. IPA is where I go, but I do I do believe that it's gotten even more competitive in the marketplace. Where if you're going to hang your hat on the number one style for craft beer, you have got to do it right. Yeah. And so that's where I think some of that approach of not as aggressive bitterness and really these layerings of hops are going on. And you you know you see all sides of it, but the IPAs that are really being talked about. Um, and getting that buzz around them are the ones that have you know true complexity and true balance and are, are very strategically thought through and have kind of a you know a mastermind of a recipe behind them. I also think there's been a lot of innovation in hops. Not that there wasn't a lot of interesting hops coming out before, but we're seeing lots of, of really interesting flavors now coming out of some of these new hops, like the Montuic, I think they are the ones. The Montuica. Uh, Montuica, which have a sort of a vanilla flavor going off of them, and these Nelson Sylvain and these other stuff that are bringing a whole bunch of these different flavors that weren't available before. Yeah, Galaxy is another one that has this really. It's almost like. <laughs> I almost want to describe it as like. Uh, I want to use the word neon in the description, you know, just like it has <laughs> this like super vivid type flavor and it. it's one of those tropical ones yeah right? galaxy i think it is kind of towards the mango end if i'm, mm-hmm. if I'm remembering yeah, right yeah. uh yeah there's lots of really interesting stuff happening i love it I, i'm i'm really happy with this beer yeah way to go anchor <laughs> you did it guys <laughs> they know how to make beer <laughs> <laughs> now, now did want to bring up this one thing because we talked about the um, we've talked about it before. There was that whole Budweiser incident during the Super Bowl, and you mentioned uh, I, I think I don't know if you mentioned on the show or, or it was before, but you actually wrote something about that for the Huffington Post. Yeah, I did. <laughs> um, we published it on Crackbeer.com as well, but I 
it was one that warranted um, enough, I think, uh, of mass interest. There were just so many stories coming out about it, and it was the um, ad that just kept getting different spins and different approaches and thoughts behind it. Uh, and I finally wanted to kind of put my non-judgmental but two cents in. It wasn't the official word of the Brewers Association by any means. Um, but, you know, what I came out and asked in the headline of the post is the business of beer, what does light, a white, what does light lager stand for? And from that um, advertisement, or sorry, yeah, TV ad during the Super Bowl, my mind was left wondering the messaging going on out there between um, um, big brewers approaching and making plays to make more full-flavored beers and buying up small and independent craft brewers and absorbing them and making them their own. And then the messaging of the ad itself, which was, you know, enjoy your, um, you know, your peach pumpkin ale, proudly a macro brew. It's not brewed to be fussed over. And it was, it was confusing to me as a beer lover. So, yep, I, I had my two cents on HuffPost Taste, and you can definitely find it out there. But the conclusion is, is that, you know, what does Light American Lager stand for and where is it headed um, with one of the, the main producers of it um, taking a stand in that manner that we saw in the Super Bowl ad. Um, and then craft beer drinkers and beer lovers today drinking different beers, different occasions, and a lot of people identifying with or not with the brewery that owns the brands that they make. And so it was a bold move. Um, it certainly got a lot of play on both YouTube afterwards and from the Super Bowl and talk. But I don't think um, you know one size doesn't fit all nowadays, and that's kind of the difference. I, I think that's true. You know, I had my own opinion on, on the Budweiser ad, but I, I think what's interesting now to come back to it is because I guess this happened happened yesterday. They tweeted, they put out a tweet that. that craft brewers were jumping on because it feels like Budweiser's almost doubling down on their message. The tweet says, nobody cheers for the guy who brings a watermelon wheat beer. And as someone bring in a keg of, or, or a, a 30 pack a, of a 30 pack of Budweiser. So, and that, that was, that was a Anheuser-Busch tweet? Yes. Yeah. Interesting. And, you know, I sort of thought of it like, in in some sense, sort of like their, their the original ad, in some sense, it's true the people who are going to be drinking watermelon wheat beer are not going to be like, woo, watermelon wheat beer, ah! But they are going to enjoy it on a different level than the people who are going to be drinking Budweiser because it's slightly flavored alcohol water. I mean, the bottom line is, is denigrating is no way to win customers. Yeah. And maybe it's a short-term strategy, but I don't see it as a long-term strategy. Um, and then the other piece of the ad that me personally as a beer lover – um, notice was the only woman in the beer was serving um, the beer to male customers. Yeah, that's true. And I think it's time that beer got it right with the with female beer drinkers. And that ad alone, um, besides the fact being picked apart for many maybe strategic or unintentional messaging, that was another maybe miss. I mean, I I I, I, I like the idea of well. First off, you know, my, my point is, you know, they are marketing a brand, right? Right, right. or wrong, it's no different than Pepsi marketing Pepsi. Right? Right. It's, it's not exactly, it wasn't an InBev ad, it was a Budweiser ad, so it was specific to Budweiser. So on oh. some level, you can, you, you, you can make a distinction, but on another level, it's, it's hard to. So Julia, I've seen a, several things 
on the in the blogosphere and whatnot about uh, craft breweries and their misogynistic uh, beer labels, you know, panty dropper and things like that. Um, I mean, do you, so you know, how do you feel about the craft breweries with these these beer brands that you know aren't really inviting women in the front door? I meant what I said when I said I think it's time beer got it right with women, okay. and that's whether you're a large or small brewer. But I think on the small brewer side, it's very isolated. And the stories that I've also seen coming through lately, and you know, asked to comment on some of them, some of them even, um, they're using isolated examples again and again and again. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's not happening in mass, but I do hope as craft brewers continue to come of age, carry the day, hopefully eventually get to 20% market share by 2020, which is the Brewers Association um, desire on behalf of craft brewers. Um, that uh, craft brewers remain sensitive to uh, their marketing efforts towards all sects of the population. It is interesting. I mean, we noticed, we've been noticing in, for the past savers, you know, it started very much male dominated, and it was, it seemed this, this year and the past couple of years even, close to 50 50, at least a lot closer than it was before. One thing we, yeah. al- one thing we also noticed this year was I at least noticed a lot more minorities. Uh, than than I'd seen before. Notice a lot what? A lot more minorities. Oh, got it. Yeah. I mean, in D.C. is an international city. Very appropriate. Um, And it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, I think you walk around Saver, what you're referring to as Saver, an American craft beer and food experience, which is the um, uh, beer and food pairing event that the Brewers Association puts on every year, mostly occurring in Washington, D.C. over the past eight years. And uh, it's 2,000 people a night, 76 breweries, two beers per brewery, and two pairings per brewery. And it's a super, super enjoyable event. Everybody's dressed up. Um, We go through a lot of um, trouble with our executive chef, Adam Dooley, to really vet the beers and set the the menu. And it's a pairing experience. It's really not a beer festival. My favorite of all the... Stop for a second. Okay, we're okay. gonna try this again. There you go. All right, but it's definitely my favorite of all the beer events that I that I go to. Uh, it's is Saver. It's always my favorite. It's just it's so much fun, and and all the people who are involved in, in brewing are right there. It's not. I mean, I love Great American Beer Fest and these other festivals, but a lot of times it'll just be volunteers. More, you won't be able to talk to the people behind the brewery, but you can do that at Saver. Yeah, Saver is every, um, there's a lottery, there's more than 200 and maybe, uh, I can't remember, it was 215 or 250, but more than 200 breweries entered the lottery to get into those, um, uh, that's less than 100 spots, and so they want to be there, and it is, it's the personalities behind the brands, and it's super who's who, and you guys do a great job of recording all the educational salons, we've got them, you've got them available through your feed, we get to borrow them and snag them. Too, but the education component is awesome at Saver. Absolutely. Are you ready to move on to the last beer, Julia? Yeah, we should. And right. I should turn the lights on in my office. It's actually getting dark here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Our final beer of the night is Boulder Shake. Now, Shake um, is a chocolate porter. It's, I assume it's a, it's a um, marijuana reference. No, no, no. It's a milkshake reference. No. <laughs> Don't assume just because they're a Colorado brewery, right? Come on. Well, I, I know that um, 
Oscar Blue just came out with um, Pinner. Pinner, which is <laughs> that was a marijuana. That's reference. not a milkshake reference. No. <laughs> Um, this is, you know, Boulder Beer has a huge history. They call themselves the first microbrewery, and they were the first kind of um, small brewery in Colorado and opened in 79. And um, today, Jeff Brown and um, brewmaster David Zuckerman, who's still at all the festivals, judges at GABF, are, are doing big things, and they don't get enough play. I think Boulder Beer has a great story, and this um, is a seriously new and crazy venture for them that's working out pretty well. And I equate this beer, and I'm already going to skew you um, in your descriptors, but it's it's somewhat like a, a Wendy's Frosty in okay. the aroma. And it's, it's got a lot to talk about. All right, so this one has an apparent enjoy by date on the bottle. Ours is enjoy by August 20th. When's yours? Let me look. Enjoyed by August 20th. Oh, nice. look at that. It was the same batch of beer. That's Probably pretty cool. Probably the same batch. That's so, pretty sweet. Five different grains, including chocolate wheat, uh, along with cocoa nibs, 5.9% alcohol by volume, 39 IBUs. Very dark. I mean, it's it's got maybe a tan highlights on it, so you'd call it... 40 plus. Yeah, 40 plus. Well, is it? Is it? Uh, let's call it a 39. <laughs> I think you're selling it short. I think it's a full 40. Yeah, I mean, a beer with chocolate added is going to add to the opacity yeah. of it. And while not as dark as an oatmeal stout, actually, if you hold like up to the light, you can see some ruby coming through. And in tasting the, the collar of foam, my little trick, I'm getting a lot of biz- residual bitterness, but I'm going to guess some of that's from the chocolate because chocolate's one of the mi- most bitter food components on planet Earth. Okay. Interesting. I guess chocolate uh, chocolate and coffee kind of have similar characteristics being that they're both these little fruits that are fermented and uh, roasted and fermented. Mm-hmm. The aroma on this one, the chocolate is apparent. It, you know, it's called shake. It plays on being like a milkshake. Are you going to go have a Wendy's Frosty now? This is... <laughs> <laughs> I think I'd rather have the shake. Yeah. I'll go for a more artisanal milkshake. <laughs> Definitely a, yeah, a lot of chocolate coming off here. Sort of a, a more of a Dutch cocoa aroma than like a I chocolate. think it smells like a Hershey syrup, actually. Really? I'm getting a pretty pretty straight-up Hershey syrup aroma. I love that descriptor because so we so often say caramel, and it's like, oh, let's go deeper, or chocolate. Like, how many levels of possible chocolate can you talk about? No, Hershey syrup, that's a good one. Yeah, I can. It's funny. I was I was just recently at Hershey Park, and they have a whole little um, fake factory tour that you're on a little <laughs> tour, a tram, a little tram through, and it's great for the kids. It was there, you know, me and nephew were there, and they enjoyed it. But at one point, they pumped chocolate aroma in, and it kind of is, smells similar to this. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, that's crazy! You just triggered a story in my mind. It might not make it um, past the cutting room floor. But when I was little, I grew up in Maryland, and we went and toured. Hershey's Pennsylvania, Hershey's Chocolate Factory there. And I came back with a Hershey shirt. And I remember my grandfather, you know, and he was alive, born in 1902. Um, totally such a different era of, um, of culture that he come, came of age in. And he looked at me when he saw my shirt, and I was probably like nine or something. And he's like, are they paying you to wear that shirt? 
and my mind was like blown. And I think that was like a foray into marketing for me. Huh. It was like I was all like in a moral conundrum because I was psyched about the shirt and running around like in my new Hershey shirt, and then all of a sudden I'm like, huh? No, they're not. I bought this thing. Yeah, I paid them. <laughs> I guess you could make the same argument. Are they paying you to walk around in the grocery store with the labels of the stuff that you have? So, <laughs> no, but stuff you want to buy. I mean, Hershey shirt's something that you're, you know, you like the brand. Well, I mean, we own beer shirts, right? I mean, yeah. so you know, want to support the brand you like. And nine year old Julia wanted to support the chocolate she liked. So, but my grandfather didn't like that at all. <laughs> it's like, who puts milk in their chocolate? Come on. So I get a good um, body on this. It's a um, medium level body, but not heavy in any shape or form. But it's got a little bit of mouth coating uh, aspect to the mouthfeel of the palate, which I like very much. Mm -hmm. And the sweetness, you think it was going to be sweeter as you get that body, but it doesn't really come through as sweet, nor does it come through as waxy. Um, but it kind of just, once you get to that level in your mind of thinking it might be sweet and it's got some body coming towards you, then it just kind of fades away. It's definitely, you know, it's on the porter side because there's a, it's a little, it's not like velvety like a stout doesn't have as, as much um, sort of a, a chewy mouthfeel that, that a stout can have. Uh, there's a bit of a strange a bit of that raisin quality to it as well. But there's a, a lot of chocolate here, a lot of... Uh, various different levels of, of bitter chocolate. For me, it, it's really maybe not ultra thick, but I mean, it's moderately thick. It, you know, I drink it, and it almost makes me think, feel like I'm drinking a Yoohoo or something like that. You know, this creamy, chocolatey drink. Mm. And then, as it tails off the end, I'm actually getting kind of like a, a Fuggles type bitterness or something. So there's actually some hop flavor that's coming through at the very end. I wouldn't have picked up on that, but I do see what you're, where you're coming at. There's a little, a little sort of pithy note that comes through, and helps I think helps keep that sweetness of the chocolate from going overboard. It could be, yeah. I mean, I, I don't notice any oxidation on this. I mean, I think we both have we all have the same beer, right. probably. So, right. Yeah, this one is. Uh... It's interesting because it's one of those ones where it's it's almost a fast drinker, you know, because it's so smooth and so sweet mm -hmm. and creamy. It's like, I'm not saying it's a chug beer, but I mean, it's one like once you take big gulp, I mean, it, make, it makes me want to take big gulps and just drink it and just enjoy it for the surface content. But if you actually take the time to stop and dig deeper, there's a lot of stuff going on in the flavor. So there's almost like there's two ways you can approach this beer. Very drinkable, very nice. So, Julia, the last time we did teletasting with you, we had you rank the beers in order of preference. Uh, since then, we've stopped making people in the industry uh, pick favorites. So it's up to you whether you want to do the rankings or not, but Greg and I will. Yeah, I'll listen to you guys. I, I don't think that uh, it's the right thing for me to do, but I'm very curious to hear your guys' Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's one thing we've realized that, uh, you know, making people that are in the in industry, you know, pick their favorite or pick their least favorite. That's the worst yeah. part. So, um, <laughs> Okay. I I don't know. 
Do you have a? Yeah, I got an idea here. I'm gonna have to put the Killer Vice uh, in last place. Um, you know, I really kind of dug into that a thing that was leaving it a little stale at the end, a little oxidized, or I mean, I'm sorry, a little light struck. I couldn't get, I couldn't really push that away. So it was definitely my uh, least favorite. The rest, of the, the other three beers, I think, were all very interesting. Um, I think I'm going to put the Anchor in third place. I really liked it. Um, big bitterness that kind of hung around. And, uh, you know, the other two beers, I liked some of the nuances better. And then, let's see, I'm going to put... I'm going to put Shake in second place. I really liked this for being a sweet stout, for being, you know, this milkshake type clone. It it wasn't too sweet. It was, the, the chocolate was very authentic. You know, some mm. of these chocolate stouts, they kind of taste kind of plasticky right. or just syrupy. They don't really seem well integrated. This one was very well integrated. Uh, so it was really good sweet stout. And then I think I'll make the 400 pound monkey number one. I, uh, really liked the nuance of excuse me the the maltiness that came through there and then the different hops that were kind of coming and going and coming and going throughout the flavor okay my uh mine is close to yours just a, a slight difference i agree that i think the sierra nevada is uh in in fourth place i didn't really taste so much the light struck thing but i just think that the other ones were for whatever reason uh appealed a little bit more to me number three i'm going to go with boulder and i think really I really kind of want this to be a stout in some sense. I feel like if this were a little bit even creamier and it had a little bit more body to it, I'd even enjoy it that much more. Um, so I guess part of me is just thinking, man, if this were if this were a big uh, creamy stout or even like an imperial stout or something, I would, I would love these flavors. For number two, I'm going to put the Anchor. I really did like what Anchor was doing there a lot, but I think I... I think I'm always going to jump at a really nice, uh, sort of a really nice East Coast IPA, something that gives me a lot of uh, a lot of malty stuff in addition to the hops. So that's why I'm going to put the 400 pound monkey from left hand mm-hmm. first. I really enjoy the interplay of real sweet maltiness with uh, some you know good hopping, and I think really did a great job here with left hand. I mean, there's been times I've had Keller Weiss, and it's been fantastic. I, I just don't think this bottle was uh, one of their was representative of what Keller, Keller Weiss normally is. So good to know. Any thoughts, Julia? I think it was a super fun lineup. It goes to show you that you can have a tasting like this, a tele tasting, and say to some friends, "Hey, let's let's taste some beers that are regionally distributed, or, or in cases here and more nationally distributed." but that are still um, interesting enough to work your way through, and it was it was very enjoyable and fun. All right. Thanks for ha- uh, taking the time out to be on the show, Joey. I appreciate it. And let's uh, yeah. make a plug here for the craftbeer.com tasting sheet, which we use, and everyone should check that out. In addition, there's the craftbeer.com, the uh, flavor triangle, which we mentioned. Really, Both really cool resources. I like them both a lot. Right on. That makes my day to hear. Thank you. <laughs> Well, thanks so much for joining us, Julia, and we'll finish with uh, some more final countdown from the London Symphony Orchestra. Craft Beer Radio is released under the Creative Commons license. You can visit craftbeerradio.com for more information. If you want to email us, you can hit me up at jeff at craft... Or I guess we just do beer at craftbeerradio. 
Uh, on Twitter, I am at Jeff Bear. At CBR Greg. Julia, what's your Twitter handle? At hers, H-E-R-Z Muses, and also at Craft Beer, D-O-T-C-O-M. All right. So there you go. thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Craft Beer Radio, and we'll see you again next week. See ya. Wow, Julia, thank you so much. That was great.